If you have your Bibles or iPhones or iPads or whatever you use to get the scriptures, turn over to Matthew chapter 13. We are in a second part of a series that we started last week. If you're here, we're talking about this easy, lighthearted, very easy to understand concept called the kingdom of God. Right? If you're here last week, you know it takes a little bit of work to understand what we're talking about. So we're in this bigger series called Disciple, which is how do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? And now we're in Matthew 13, and we're, we're, where Jesus begins to tell a series of stories or parables or illustrations to demonstrate for you and I what exactly this thing is called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Very important concept. And the reason it's so important is because many of us, we become so focused on church that we forget that it's not about church, it's actually about God's kingdom, which is much broader, much bigger than just the church. The church is God's people together, and that's all of us. And the kingdom is far bigger because that's where God's rule and his reign through Jesus is present in our lives and in our world, even if we don't necessarily know that. So if you're here last week, we talked about that, about the reality of the kingdom of God is, is that place or that, that, that person or where God's work is where his rule and his reign, which means his authority over our lives and over other people and over different things and circumstances and his reign, which is his power, his ability to reconcile people back to God through Jesus, where that is present. That's where God's kingdom is present. That's where it's active, where he's working. So we're talking about a broader concept than than just the church. Now, before we jump into Matthew 13 this morning, I want you to get a little bit more explanation about the kingdom of God, because I know this is a... For some of us, I remember growing up in the church, and I'd heard the word kingdom until... It wasn't honestly until I was in Bible college that I really understood there was a difference between the church and the kingdom of God. It was always like, oh, they're all the same, and it's all, you know, where you go to church on Sunday, that's the kingdom. It's like, no, it's broader. So understanding it this way, so, so when Jesus, we won't go back there, but we were in Matthew 6 a long time ago when, when we were continuing to go through Matthew, and in chapter 6, Jesus gives us a pray, the prayer, he describes and gives us an understanding of how to pray. And in that, at the beginning of the prayer, he, he uses these phrases to help us understand something about the kingdom. He says that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are really important phrases because what Jesus was saying is that the kingdom of God is God's will as it's done in heaven, which is heaven is the realm where God's will is always accomplished. Wouldn't that be cool? God always wins. God's will is always accomplished. Nothing gets in the way. The problem is, as on earth, we live in earth, right? No one's in heaven, not yet. Okay, some of you might act like you are, but you're not. You're still on earth. And understanding that earth is a context where God's will is not always done. His sovereign purpose is always accomplished, but his immediate will, because of our own decisions and sinfulness and the brokenness of the world, we live in this kind of partial reality, which is we experience the kingdom of God in little bits and pieces in in our life, in his working us, but we have yet to fully experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. That comes in eternity. That's when we get to experience that. So understanding that, that God's desire is that his perfect will, as it's always accomplished in heaven, eventually will always be accomplished on this place called earth. So understanding that means that you and I live in this really strange tension. It's, some people describe it, it's the now and it's the not yet. It's the kingdom of God, but it's not in its fullest capacity yet. So this illustration hopefully helps. So Anybody remember light brights when you're growing up? Some of you probably still own them, right? You still play with them. At least your kids do. They actually still have them. They're actually better and nicer than when I was a kid. But you remember the concept of a light bright was this little box that was backlit. And you would take this like black piece of construction paper and you put it over the lights. And there's all these little holes. 
And on that black piece of construction paper is a pattern. And the pattern tells you what these little pegs that are, are different colors, where they go and what color goes where. And then when you poke that and, and puncture the, the, the black paper, then the light shines through that, that colored peg. And then you get this beautiful picture of whatever you're supposed to have. See, the kingdom of God is like that. See, the, the, eventually, someday, the fullness of the kingdom will be the light bright without the construction paper, without the pegs. It'll be the full brightness of everything. But you and I live in a world that there's a sense that you and I see the kingdom of God bursting through the darkness periodically to get enough of an understanding that we see really the picture that God's painting for the world. And if you and I understand that, that's why you see, well, people ask me, well, why is it that every time we pray, people aren't healed? Shouldn't they be healed all the time? In heaven, they are. On earth, they're not. It's about God's breaking through. Then why do some people get healed and some don't? Because God in his sovereignty chooses to demonstrate the power of his kingdom where he wants to for his purpose. That's why healings happen. That's why miracles happen. Otherwise, you and I could pray for every ailment we have and it would, it would be taken care of. The reality is, in the kingdom to come, we won't have any ailments. We won't have any sickness. We won't have any death. We, won't have, we don't even have to pray because we'll be in the direct presence of God. That's, that's then. So understanding, that's kind of the tension that we live in. So now, how do you and I understand the kingdom? And specifically today in chapter 13, in verse 31 to 35, how does the kingdom of God work? How does it work in our lives, in us, and through us? And so Jesus tackles that and tells us some very important things this morning. So let me read, starting verse 31 to verse 35 in Matthew 13. It says, Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, those are synonymous terms, is like a, a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of the garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he shows up and now he begins to tell these stories that are not only true for them 2,000 years ago, but true for us today to say, let me give you a picture about what this is about about my kingdom being established. And so he gives us these illustrations. So we're going to start with the mustard seed and the concept of how God's kingdom works in us and works through us. There, those are, work in tandem all the time. We have to capture that. So look at verse 31 and 32. Jesus is using this illustration of the mustard seed to demonstrate about the kingdom that it always starts small. So going on, so Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Now, this is what's crazy. One mustard seed, you have to take 20,000 mustard seeds to equal one ounce in weight. Just think about that for a, for a moment. That's tiny. That's small. That's almost microscopic. It almost seems like it. 20,000 to equal one ounce of weight. So Jesus knows what he's doing because Jesus was pretty proficient in the culture and their understanding of agriculture and what a mustard seed in a tree would look like. And so he uses this analogy because they understood that the mustard seed eventually grows to be a larger tree, but it starts as almost nothing. You almost can't even see it. It's like it's not even on the radar, but it's there. And so he's talking about the way that the kingdom of God works in our lives is that God's work in us, his power, his rule and his reign starts in very small ways. 
And the reason that's important is because you and I would rather choose another option, which is, God, would you just come and just kind of flip the switch, take over, in a sense, make me a robot, make me never do anything wrong again. Wouldn't we like that option? But he doesn't. He comes in subtly, subtly, and he comes in under the radar, and his power starts very small in our lives. But then it grows. And if you just, for a moment, just, just think about the way that God works in the human soul. So we know because of what the Bible says that God has been pursuing and will pursue people all of human history. God is initiating. He's reaching out. Why? Because he wants to be back in relationship with everyone. That's why Jesus came to die for our sin, to remove the barriers so that we could be reconciled back to God. So God's constantly pursuing all of us. And before we come to that place where we know who Jesus is and we make a commitment to him, God is still at work in our lives. He's still working on us and because he, he's after everybody. And that's kind of like the mustard seed. It's this little thing that gets implanted into your soul. And it gets implanted into your soul long before you ever make a commitment to follow Jesus. How many, if you think about it for a moment, you know that God was working on you before you ever made a commitment to follow Jesus. You know. God was already, he's orchestrating things. He's reaching out to you. He's already planted that tiny little seed in you that's growing, but you don't know it's growing yet because it hasn't broken the surface yet. And so it's going, and then finally there's that moment in that day when you realize the light comes on and you realize, I have to turn my life over to Jesus. I'm not in charge anymore. He's in charge. That's when that, that little seed now breaks the surface and becomes what we would consider life. It's already working down underneath it. That's the way the kingdom of God works. It comes in very subtly. Think about your own journey. That, that's what happens. So you come to Christ, and what happens is that God's transforming power in us. There's moments where it's accelerated and things change rapidly, but there are usually long seasons and periods where there's gradual changes over time. And the only way that we're able to identify those is if you and I go back in our own spiritual history and take a snapshot of where we used to be and then look clearly at where we are today, we see the incredible change that God has brought. You and I will look back on our life, and we look at ourselves. I do this all the time and think, there's no way if you would have gone back five years, ten years, twenty years, I would have ever thought this would be happening in my life today. That these would be the convictions and the values that I have in life, because way back then they weren't. But because of the impact of God working in me, there's this transformation that happens inside of us. And even from where you are, you'd be considered mature. The more that you follow Jesus, the more reign of his kingdom in your life, and the more you become like Jesus, and you end up doing things that you would have never thought you could do or would do. Why? Because God's influence is in you. You know, the, one of the, the kind of the, the journeys that mirrors our journey with the Lord, and that's why it's really important. Jesus talked a ton about money. Because money is something that demonstrates and shows us where what we value and what's most important in life. And that's why when most people, when, you, when we come to Christ and you start hearing about giving of, you, of your resources, most of us in our mindset think, this is my money. Why does God need my money? He's a really wealthy guy. He doesn't need my money. And so the concept of tithing, starting with giving 10%, that is like a huge leap for most people. Like, wait a second, this is my money. Why should I give it away? Why should I give it to the church? But what happens over time is, is the more and more God's power and God's kingdom takes over our hearts, the more we realize that the money doesn't belong to us anyway. And I've watched the journey. I watch it in my own life. I watch it in other people. And then, then there's that, that leap that says, okay, I'm going to start tithing. And by the way, when you start tithing, God's not looking for 10%. God's looking for everything. And it's not just about what you give to the church. It's about how you live with your money every day of your life. But I've watched in people, and eventually we realize, wait, it's not about 10%. It's about more than that. It's about everything. And if this is God's money and he prompts me to give, then it's not a matter of me saying, God, you can't have my money because it's already his. 
And there's this transformation that happens. And I look at stuff today when Kim and I, when we make financial decisions and we give and, and, and tithe and do those things, I think, man, if you roll the clock back just a little ways, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you're like, I would have never thought I would have given that. I would have thought that's a terrible financial decision. You're not taking care of your family. You're not planning for your future. You're not being wise with a good steward. And now I look at it today and realize, no, it's not my money anyway. That's the, the progression. That's the change. That's this little mustard seed getting implanted in you. And over time, it begins to influence more and more and more of who you are. And then there's a going on. The second thing that Jesus mentioned going on in verse 32 is that the kingdom works this way. Its influence is greater than its size. So this is how it works through us. So Jesus says, it is the smallest seed, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It starts as this tiny little thing. I don't know how they measured it, but somebody measured the diameter of a mustard seed is one-sixteenth of an inch. I don't even know how you do that. Under a microscope, maybe? I don't know. But can you imagine how small it is? And what does that one-sixteenth of an inch in diameter seed become? It becomes a tree, virtually a tree in a garden that can grow to 12 feet high. Now, when Jesus is telling this 2,000 years ago, they're getting it because they know what a mustard tree looks like. They've seen that, that growth happen. And so what Jesus is saying is it's implanted very small. It starts very simple, but it becomes something of great power and influence that everybody sees and everybody knows and understands. Now, just think about in our lives when God begins to work in us, that's the way it happens. It comes in suddenly and over time. The, the significance and influence of God's power in our life takes over more territory, and we realize that God is doing something great far beyond us. See, this is when it branches out beyond us, because usually you and I will say this to God. We won't articulate it maybe outwardly, but we will think it in our mind. When we know that there's something God's drawing us to, or there's something he's pulling us to, or we know that we need to jump in and do something, we will usually think, I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough time. And we give God all of these excuses. Meanwhile, he says, no, 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 this is not about you. This is about my kingdom in you. And if my kingdom is growing in you, it will become significant and it will do far greater than you ever thought it could because it's about what he's doing, not about our ability. God doesn't look for perfect people. He just looks for people who are willing to surrender. That's this, that's the scope of scripture. That's how you see people unfold. You know, a few weeks ago, it's probably about a month ago now, sitting in a, in a, in a, at a wedding in Angelus Temple, which Angelus Temple is the mother church for Foursquare. That's where our denomination, our movement was birthed back in 1923. And I was sitting there, and I was just, before the wedding started, just kind of reflecting on that building. I had the, the privilege of actually preaching there one time. It was just amazing. So to know that, that this now, what's, now it's called the Dream Center. It's the Church of the Dream Center, which is probably one of the most influential churches in caring for the needs of the city of Los Angeles that there is right now, not to downplay any other church, but the Dream Center has had profound impact in the city of Los Angeles. That's what's housed there at Angeles Temple. So Foursquare started there, and now today there are 66,000 uh, churches and 140 nations with millions of people coming to Christ. That's Foursquare. Where did that all start? It started as a mustard seed in the heart of a woman named Emmy Simple McPherson in Canada when she was a teenager. God planted something in her that was going to go far beyond her. See, the kingdom always has disproportionate influence for its size. It starts small, but it becomes so much bigger than any of us. And some of you are sitting here today, and you, because you came to know Jesus through a four-square church, maybe through this church, which is a four-square church. And where did that all start? Well, obviously, we know it started in the heart of God but he used it through a mustard seed planted in the heart of a woman to begin a movement that would literally reach millions of people around the globe. 
Now, she was a teenager, she was a woman, and she wasn't even a U.S. citizen, yet God still used her. How's that possible? Because God's not looking for the best and the brightest and the perfect. He's looking for people who are willing and significance of what that looks like now. And even in our own, in, in the city of Los Angeles, the Dream Center now carries on really doing a lot of what Angelus Temple did when it was first founded. That's the way that God's kingdom works. And I don't know about you, that gets me a little excited because I know my shortcomings and I know my failures and I know my inadequacies and God doesn't care about those. He moves beyond those because it's more about what he wants to do through me than what I think he can and cannot do. And then the third thing that Jesus talks about when he talks about the, the illustration of a mustard seed is that it, it means that it includes all people. So Jesus paints another picture that's really, really neat. In going on the last part of verse 32, he says, It grows into a tree, and birds come, and they make nests in the branches. Is Jesus just being flowery and saying, Yeah, this isn't beautiful. There's a little birds chirping. No. Historically, the, one of the interpretations, and I think it's probably pretty accurate knowing the way that Jesus was trying to, to explain the kingdom, is that a tree symbolized an empire or a kingdom. People would know that. It was something that would start small and it would grow and become very influential. And the birds would symbolize other nations of the world coming to rest under the authority and the umbrella of that particular empire or kingdom. So when Jesus says the mustard seed grows into a mustard tree that grows to a place where now the bird, it's big enough that the birds come and they nest on it, he was, he was painting this image that the kingdom of God is for all people and that God's desire is that all people will come, come under his rule in his reign from every background, nationality, language, people group. It's, that's laced throughout Scripture. We've seen it. We've talked about that before. Why? Because God loves people, and His kingdom is not for one race. It's not for one particular group of people. It wasn't just for the Jews. Now, this remember, this was hard because the Jews, what did they want Jesus to do? They wanted Him to show up, come in on Palm Sunday, lay down the palm branches, say, hey, the king is here. Now we're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to reestablish the kingdom of God, which really to them was the kingdom of the Jews. And Jesus says, no, it's bigger than you. This is about the whole world. This is about all people groups. And so he paints this picture because what he's showing is that ultimately Jesus came to reconcile all of humanity who choose to be back in relationship to God through the cross, through his death. That is the whole process of human history. This thing called reconciliation. And someday, that's what, we won't go there, but Revelation 7 demonstrates that someday people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will stand before the throne in heaven with Jesus. Because this is the image that Jesus is painting here. And why is that important to you and I? Because God has called you and I to not only be reconciled, but to be people who reconcile others through Jesus back to God. Let me read from uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. This is in a translation or a paraphrase called The Message. Many of you know The Message. The Message is good in some areas, and this is one I think that really Eugene Peterson captured, I think, what Paul was trying to communicate. So he says this in verse 18. He says, All this comes from God, who settled the relationship between us and Him. That's the reconciliation. And then He called us to settle our relationships with each other. That's reconciliation with others. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. God uses us to pursue men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work for making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now, and then he goes on and says, become, become friends with God as he's already a friend with you. At least God's disposition is to be a friend of sinners, to bring us back in relationship. 
I, li- I wanted to read that because Eugene Peterson translates that without ever using the word reconciliation. He just describes what it looks like. We're good with God. That means we should be good with each other, and we help the world to be good with God through Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's the kingdom of God working. That's this whole concept of all these people groups. And, and for some of us, we have to be reminded because we have a tendency to gravitate towards people who talk like us, look like us, act like us, live in the same area, and have a hard time when we step out of that to people who are different language, different culture, different background, different rhythm of life. And heaven will be a rude awakening when you stand around the throne and you won't see anybody white standing next to you. Seriously. But, like, wait a second. That's, well, think, look at the world. The world is not predominantly white, is it? It's black, yellow, white, brown, all different races, all different colors. That's, that's the beauty of what God brings through the kingdom. And in our own city, we're we not the most diverse city. Most of us realize that. You have to go over the hill into the San Fernando Valley and then closer to L.A. to get more diversity. But in our city, there, are, there is diversity. And, and one of the things we have to do is getting outside the normal rhythms of life. I've, you've heard me talk about this. Laundry love is a beautiful demonstration of how the world is coming to our city. Now, some of us, we call it illegal immigration. I think it's God's purpose in trying to bring the gospel to people who may be far off from him. So you walk into a laundry love in a laundromat, and in our group, what we experience is we see people every single time that literally have probably just the week before made a trip of thousands of miles for hope of a better life. They're not worried about who's in the White House. They're not worried about our immigration laws. All they care about is I need to be able to make a living for my family and I can't do it where I live right now. So they cross the border and guess where they end up? They end up in laundromats. And we've met people from Honduras, from Guatemala, from anywhere in South America and Central America, I mean all over the place, from Mexico. All, people white, they're flocking to, to the U.S. and they end up needing to do their laundry, which is you know, pretty much a human need in our culture to have clean clothes. And then some crazies from New Hope decide in a community group to go in and invade their space and hang out for an hour and a half and just have a conversation. Why? Because God loves people. And God cares deeply for the people who come into our country illegally or legally because he loves them. And someday his purpose is that all nations will come and will nest on the branches of the kingdom and represent the world. That doesn't just happen in eternity. That happens now because God's people value the world. That's why we're, we want to partner with Haiti. That's why we want to partner with Brazil. That's why we want to partner with Peru. That's why we're, we're the, where God opens doors because there are millions, if not billions of people around the world that have never even heard of Jesus, let alone the kingdom of God. They're just, they don't even know who Jesus is. But those are people that someday you and I will have the privilege of standing next to as we worship Jesus around the throne, looking at their faces that are not white, but that are in the kingdom because we were willing to cross cultural barriers, geographical barriers, things that freak us out, like talking to somebody else, which we'll talk about in a moment. So then Jesus shifts, and in the, going on verse 33, he talks about yeast. So mustard seed, yeast. And yeast tells us some important things about the way the kingdom of God works. So in verse 33, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God, it comes from the outside in. So Jesus says... He also, he says, also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman used in making bread. Really basic illustration. So basically, Jesus is saying, listen, there's dough and there's yeast. And when a woman makes bread, she takes the yeast, she mixes it into the dough so that it rises so that you don't just have a lump of dough. You actually have bread when it's cooked. 
And so he's saying that this, this thing, yeast, comes from the outside and invades the dough so that it can impact it in influencing it. The kingdom of God works the same way. It is this invasion into our hearts that transforms who we are. It, this is, it's different than what we would, we would think of in terms of an invasion because we, we think more of militarily, but Jesus comes not so that we can be dominated by him, but that, so that we can be liberated by him. It's completely different. How does God invade our soul? When you and I make a commitment to Jesus, the, the Bible's pretty clear that God deposits the Holy Spirit in us. We receive that as a deposit for the future that says, yeah, you belong to me, and in eternity you will get in because my spirit lives in you. But there's something that happens in following Jesus where eventually you reach the end of yourself, and you realize that God's desire for you and the world is bigger than you can handle and more important than your own selfishness, and God ignites you and then fills you with his Holy Spirit. And empowers you for his mission. Because what God calls you to do is always greater than you can accomplish on your own. It requires God's power through you. And that's what it means to be Pentecostal. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This influence, this invasion, there's an invasion of God's Spirit into our hearts so that we follow his mission and his purpose in his power. And that's important distinction because one of the challenges that we have in the church is that we lose the heart of what it means to be Pentecostal in the midst of Pentecostalism. If I use the term Pentecostal, there are a hundred different definitions in this room of what that looks like. And that is, it means really exuberant, out-of-control worship. That's Pentecostal. Pentecostal is someone who speaks in tongues. That's Pentecostal. Pentecostal is where there's always healings happening and there's always an altar call. And We all have all these definitions. What's biblical Pentecostalism? What happened in the book of Acts? It's when people surrendered their life so fully to Jesus that he got fully a hold of them. He empowered them by the Holy Spirit and they did things that they knew they could never do on their own. In fact, wouldn't even want to do on their own. Let's just, for example, talk about Peter. Peter's our favorite illustration because Peter failed many times and we always love a failure, right? It makes us feel better about ourselves. But look at Peter's journey. Look at the way that God worked in Peter's life. So Jesus comes on that seashore so many years ago and he calls Peter and he tells him to leave his business. He says, Peter, you're, gonna, you're not fishing for fish anymore. You're going to fish for people. That's what I want you to do with your life. So Peter says yes, and he follows. But, but from that point forward, you watch Peter's journey, and Peter was always the first one in. He was always the first one to open his mouth. But he was always the one that just didn't quite get it when it came to Jesus. It's like one moment he had brilliance, the other minute he had stupidity, which we all agree, we know that's, we're just like Peter, right? And there was like these moments of clarity followed by these absolute moments of total confusion. You know, so Peter, when Jesus, you know, asked, who, who do people say that I am? And Peter makes this great proclamation. You are the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you didn't figure that one out, Peter. The God told you that one. And then you read a few verses later, and what does Peter say? Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And Peter goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you're not. That's not, a way that, that's not the way this works. And then what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Wait a second. How in one moment it seems like God can reveal who Jesus is to Peter, and then the next moment he's being used by Satan. Because Peter just didn't quite get it. 
And then when, when Jesus says, by the way, you're all going to turn your back on me, and Peter's like, no, not me. Not me. I'm not going to. I will never deny you. I mean, adamantly. And then we know the story goes on. What does Peter do? Three times he denies Jesus on his way to the cross. Peter just had this cycle. But then let's fast forward. What, what happened? So Jesus rises from the dead. Peter sees him. And even when you go to, we'll go there, when John 21, you could tell Peter's still struggling. He's still struggling because he's like, Jesus asked him, do you love me, Peter? And Peter's like getting tense with Jesus, like, duh, I love you. That's what Peter was saying back to him. Jesus said, well, then do this. And Peter's like, don't you get that I love you? And eventually, so you get to Acts chapter 2. This is where it all comes together for Peter. Because here's a guy who had a heart for Jesus and wanted to follow God and do the right thing, but just didn't quite get it. And then the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 2. And what happens to Peter? We won't read it, but man, here's a guy who didn't get it. And in a moment, he gets it. Peter, who didn't understand everything, in a moment gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he interprets the Old Testament prophet Joel and says, by the way, what you and I are experiencing right now, what you're seeing, people are speaking in tongues, people are hearing the praises of God in their own language, people are being transformed, people are getting saved. You know what all this is? This is what Joel talked about. And he was so convincing and so amazing in his communication through the power of the Holy Spirit that thousands of people were saved and baptized in that moment. This is Peter. Forgive me, Peter. We know Peter. He failed miserably. What happened to Peter? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He finally got it. It finally clicked for him. And for some of us, we've never experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit. You may have gone to a Pentecostal church your entire life, and you're still confused what that means. It means I finally get to the end of myself, stop living a selfish life, be about God's mission, surrender myself, and allow Him to be the one who drives this thing. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that shows me what my life is supposed to be about. I surrender to him. And then there are times when he fills you and he may give you the gift of tongues and he will give you other gifts. What? For your own purpose? No, but for his purpose. See, a truly Pentecostal church is a church that is missional in its heart. That's what happened. Look at the book of Acts. The church exploded because the Holy Spirit showed up and it grew rapidly, not because there were other churches that they could borrow believers from. It's because they were reaching people who had never heard Jesus before under the power of the Holy Spirit. See, what some of us need is the reason that we haven't shifted into mission yet is because we're scared to death. We are scared to death of looking stupid to other people. And that's why when you read through the book of Acts, how many times the Holy Spirit shows up and it says they were filled with courage and spoke the word of God boldly. Some of us are afraid to walk across the street and talk to our neighbors. Some of us are afraid to go into a laundromat and talk to a stranger. Some of us are just flat out afraid to get outside the circle that we live in. We're comfortable, we're familiar, we're easy, and the world is around us, and the kingdom of God is present, and God is saying, are you going to wake up and respond to what I'm doing around you? The next thing, and the second thing really that Jesus talks about when it comes to the concept of yeast going on in verse 33, is that it works from the inside out. Now you're saying, wait a second, it was outside in, now it's inside out. So Jesus goes on, he says, even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. This is the dangerous part. When you and I fully surrender to the Holy Spirit because Jesus is working in us, look out, because he will leave no stone unturned in your soul. He will touch everything, even if you don't want him to. He will continue to pursue every aspect of who you are because the kingdom of God will permeate every part of who you and I are to the point we are transformed from the inside out. There's this transformation of our soul that changes. I don't do this because I have to. I actually do this because I want to. 
I'm not do this because I'm compelled to some obedience that I have no choice in. I am driven to do what God wants me to do because it's the right thing to do and it comes inside of me. And it's a shift for you. And this is what I long for in my life. And I, 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 I'll find myself switching back into the law. I'm like, oh, I feel guilty. I feel shame. I have to do this. Or God doesn't love me. And the Holy Spirit graciously says, shut up. That's the old way of doing it. And realize that he's trying to transform me. So I don't have to, that I want to. See, it's the concept of kingdom. When we talk about kingdom, we think of violence. We think of arms. We think of domination. We think of military. We're going to assert our force over you so that you have to do what we want you to do. That's not the kingdom of God. Remember, mustard seed starts really small. Yeast weaves its way in, permeates everything. And then what? Rises from the inside out. So here's, here's what's happening so you understand. The success of ISIS in Iraq, you know where that's coming from? It's coming from discontent in people. So we're like, where did ISIS come from? We were fighting Al-Qaeda, and now Al-Qaeda, the people are saying Al-Qaeda is afraid of ISIS. Like, wait a second. How did this, like, super terrorist threat just evolve? It started years ago, and this is the challenge sometimes when we get our news. We don't get the whole story. When Saddam was toppled, it created what happens in every nation. When one regime is toppled, the one that's been oppressed rises. So that's what happened. So those who were anti-Saddam were from a different sect of, of Islam who were being suppressed and persecuted by Saddam. Now they had the upper hand. So they started to dominate. Guess what they started to do? They started persecuting those who were followed Saddam, those who were from a different sect in Islam. And they started not only persecuting them, they were killing them, they were taking their property, they wouldn't even allow them to have jobs, they were throwing them in prison. And so this whole discontent underneath the surface is happening in Iraq. Then ISIS gets some foothold in Syria and then spreads into Iraq. And what are the, you know who the fighters in ISIS are? They're, they're men who are sitting in their homes, unemployed, with no hope for a job, being persecuted. And ISIS comes along and says, do you want a perfect state? Do you want to live in a place where you have a job and you can care for your family, where you have the rights and privileges that you used to have? Then join us and we will have an Islamic state that you dream of. That's why they're such popular. They are, they are tapping into... What they've done is they've captured the hearts of people who've been persecuted and suffered. And they're using that to fuel this army. There's something about ISIS that's kind of smart. They're trying to, instead of going from the outside in, which they will eventually, when, if, they, if ISIS wins and Iraq becomes an Islamic state, people realize, wait a second, we didn't get what you told us we were going to get. All we got was a government that controls every aspect of our lives and tells us what we have to do, and we don't get to choose what we want to do. But what they're selling right now is this inside-out transformation. If they can get the heart of the disgruntled dad sitting at the table with his kids who he can't feed, they can build an army. And someone can be convinced, I'm doing this from the inside to make change. But the only way that truly happens is when it's not about conflict, it's not about war, it's not about military, it's not about asserting your will over somebody else. It's about the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings in our soul. That's one that liberates. That's one that values justice and mercy and forgiveness. That's the kingdom that God wants to build. Everything opposite of what ISIS is doing. They just happen to be piggybacking on a process that God mastered before time began. You can't change people unless you change their soul. And that's what God is doing. And that's why when we allow the, the yeast, this image of yeast, to permeate every part of our soul, wouldn't it be wonderful one day to wake up and not feel guilty for the lack in your life? Maybe I'm just preaching to myself. 
Wouldn't it be nice to get up in the day and be so naturally compelled to do what's right, to do what God wants, to get outside myself, to live for his kingdom, that I didn't feel any twinge of guilt in me because of it? I didn't feel driven like I have to do this, otherwise God's going to be upset. Anybody relate, or am I just preaching to myself? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's when he's permitted every aspect and transferred every aspect of who you are. So this is a natural outflow of who you are. It's what they were in the book of Acts. It was natural for Peter and for Paul to do what they were doing. Why? Because they had been so changed and transformed. God had permeated the depth of their soul. And the final thing, the final thing before the worship team will, will join us again for one last song, is that the kingdom works this way, is that it only works by contact. So Jesus uses this illustration of yeast, and he talks about it permeating every part of who we are. The kingdom of God only works in two arenas when there's contact. Contact between us and God and contact between us and the world. It transfers by contact. This is important. The illustration of yeast is so important because yeast gets into the dough and this amazing chemical reaction happens. So yeast gets into the dough and it takes the starch and turns it into sugar. And then another enzyme comes along and takes the sugar and turns it into alcohol, which that's the reason you get a gas that builds bubbles. And that's why when you cook bread that has yeast in it, the dough rises and then the gas dissipates. And what are you left with? You ever picked up a piece of bread and looked at it? There's little holes all over it. That's the impact of the yeast because the yeast was in contact with the flour or the, the dough and that's what makes the bread. It happens because there's contact. Now, this is why this is so important. The kingdom of God in our life, the transformation of our soul, only happens when you and I have a deep and profound connection with the God of the universe. And that means you and I have to surrender fully to him so that he permeates every part of who we are. Every corner of our minds, every aspect of our finances, every part of our relationships, everything that we do in our career, everything. God is the one who drives the train. He's the one that's in charge. He has to be the one that dictates everything. Otherwise, there won't be any transformation. And tragically, I've seen it in my life, but I know I've watched it so many times as a pastor. People become disillusioned with God. And I know one of the reasons why is because usually the response is this. You go through a crisis or a challenge, or you get to the end of yourself and say, I don't want to live this anymore. So you come to God, and what you're looking for is you're looking for a Band-Aid to put over a wound in your life, and then you want it to go away. So God is that Band-Aid, and you just take God and you apply Him to your problems, and you ask Him to make your problems go away, and then you sit back and you wait, and your problems don't go away, and then the conclusion is, God doesn't work. God is not who he says he is. God is not real. Why? Because I prayed and I asked him to do this and he didn't do it. Therefore, he's not real. The reason that there's a problem with that is it requires no contact between you and God. See, because what happens is when you really commit, commit your life to Jesus, you're opening, John said it earlier, what is worship? It's opening ourselves up and surrendering fully to God. It's letting God come in and fully invade who we are. And then what happens is our prayers change. Our requests change because now we're praying according to his will, not just the to-do list that we give God, and then we're disappointed because he didn't jump through our hoops. And I've seen it happen so many times. We want God at a distance to change us, but we don't want to give him all of who we are and let him transform us. It's different. And when we do that, then we realize, well, God is real. Why? Because I'm not the one that's driving the train war. I'm not setting the agenda for God. God's setting the agenda for me. And then that translates as well. If the, you take the theme of yeast all the way through, God has to permeate our soul. That means you and I have to permeate our culture. 
We were never meant to be isolated from the world. We got this idea that we come to Christ, and in order to stay pure, we isolate ourselves from the world, we get the holy huddle going, and we hang on for dear life until Jesus comes back, and then we can go to heaven pure. I grew up in that. That's what I thought. I'm like, man, I come to Jesus. I run as fast as I can from the world. Get away, get away. Evil stuff. It's gonna, bad stuff's going to happen. Don't touch me. You're going to infect me. Anybody ever remember that? Do you feel that way? Okay. It's true. That's the mentality. We don't maybe say it, but we live that way. And we forget. The kingdom of God is alive and well through the Holy Spirit living in me, and I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid of the influence that the world may bring on me. Now, let's use common sense. If you're a week-long recovering alcoholic, you probably should not have a bar ministry. We understand that, okay? You don't put yourself in situations where you know you are still living out the difficulties of your temptation. But that's a very small percentage and very small fraction of our lives. There's a lot more in our lives that you and I are able to navigate in being in the world. And if we look at it that way, realizing... God's purpose is for the yeast to spread from my heart to the hearts of other human beings. Then we have to be in contact. Listen to what Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 15. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out. He's praying for his disciples. Not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And then 1 John 4, 4 says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. If Jesus wanted to isolate ourselves from the world, I'm telling you, you know how he would do this? The moment you came to Christ, he would kill you on the spot. He would. Why, why allow us to be in the world if there was no purpose other than to go to heaven? Then why, why be here, be saved? Why not just be saved on the spot? And that's one of my, my, my Bible college professors, his theory on discipleship. He goes, discipleship's really messy. To clean it up, he goes, just bring people to Christ, take out a gun, shoot them, and send them to heaven. I'm like, I don't think that's what God had in mind, but it sounds really good sometimes when you work with certain people. I won't mention names. Anyway, but think about that. Why are we still here? Because the kingdom of God is like yeast, and it's permeating through our lives and permeating into other people's lives and reaching the depths of their soul. That's why we're still here. And if you and I can grasp that, just, for a moment, just grasp that reality, that I've, I've said yes to Jesus, the Spirit's deposited in me, and I get to the point where I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm, I'm focusing on what God's doing, Therefore, every place that I go, every place that my foot hits the ground, my home, my neighborhood, my work, my school, when I'm driving, guess what? The kingdom of God is present because you and I have the DNA of the king in us, in our soul. And so everywhere we go, we don't have to come to church to experience the kingdom. The kingdom is right there on the street. It's right there at work. It's right there wherever you are because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. If you and I were able to grasp that concept, First of all, we wouldn't be afraid of anything because we know who dwells in us. Secondly, we would see the world completely different because every encounter you and I have with another human being is an opportunity that God has orchestrated that he may want to do something in that moment that we need to be aware of. It's what we talked about last week. Remember I said we get into the rhythms and routines of life and we get bored and we don't see outside of ourselves. We drive the same way to work or the same way to church. We don't see anybody. We don't see, and we just don't see the world around us. Drive differently. Do something different. And why? Because there's something going on around you. I love my smartphone because I believe God can use technology to help people like me who forget things very easily. I have a little app called Reminders on my own iPhone. If you have an iPhone, you know what it is. Every phone has one. And I have a little reminder, especially out of last, the week, last week's message for myself, that is, it is orchestrated to go off as soon as I drive away from my house every single day. And it usually kicks in about a quarter mile down the street. 
and it says this. It pops up, and it says, show me your kingdom. And I can't tell you in this last week how many times I just got in the car, my mind's already thinking about what's happening that day, and I get to the end of the street, and ding! The Spirit of God through the iPhone says, show me your kingdom. And it changes everything, because I get out of the rut and the routine of every day, and now I open my eyes. So when I go places, I have made a commitment. I am going to have a conversation and engage with humanity around me, more than just an exchange of buying goods and services or whatever it might be. If there's someone in a waiting room sitting next to me, how dare me not acknowledge them as a human being and try to have a conversation with them? I know I've done that for years, and I fought that, and you feel guilty, like, I have to save them. I don't have to save them. I just have to talk to them. God saves them. And maybe if I open my mouth, God might do something by his kingdom to let the yeast get out of me and into them. And this week, I remember sitting, waiting for my car, the oil change. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm reading my book. I'm reading a book called The Reason for God about the gospel. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to that guy next to me. Anybody ever want to admit that's true? And I'm like, put, and I, the Holy Spirit's like, put the book down right here next to you. And so I just asked the guy about his cars, and we started talking about where he came from and where his mom was from. And, and it, was, it was a great conversation. Did he get saved? No, not right there in, you know, in, in the lube place, but who knows? Another guy walked in with a dog, and the three of us had a great conversation. And this is in a city I talked about where nobody talks to anybody else around here, do they? And we were all talking. In fact, when our cars were done, it was almost like we had to tell the attendant, can you just give us a moment? We're having a nice conversation here. It was great. Engaging with human beings. If we do that and realize that the kingdom of God dwells in us and wants to get out of the lives of other people, I guarantee there will be those encounters where God will use that and go way beyond anything you imagine. God may plant a seed in somebody that you may not see grow into a tree, but someday that tree will grow in them or that yeast will spread in them and they will come to that place where they will make a commitment to Jesus if we realize it and we see it around us. We are carriers of the kingdom. It's a package deal. It all comes in when you say yes to Jesus. You're like, whoa, I don't know what I said yes to. That's okay. You probably wouldn't even really embrace it then. But now God's getting a hold of us and saying, listen, My kingdom is in you by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out and have contact with the world around you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the simplicity of stories and parables. That when you shared about a mustard seed and you shared about yeast 2,000 years ago, you knew that throughout time that's going to be something that we can reference back to to understand about your kingdom. And Lord, I, I ask that today that all of us would move beyond maybe some of our own understanding about being so focused on church that we've lost sight of the kingdom. We know that you love your church because the church is your people, but we also know that you came to announce that your kingdom had arrived and is continuing to arrive in our lives throughout human history. So I pray that today, each one of us, Lord, if if there's areas of our life where maybe we've tried to hold out, maybe we've tried to not let the seed grow, or maybe we've tried to keep the yeast in certain areas. I pray today, Lord Jesus, that just the the nature of the kingdom, I know, Lord, you will not ever accept a no from us. You will continue to pursue, you will continue to probe until finally we are fully surrendered to you, and your kingdom has permeated every ounce of our soul so that we can be transformed. So I pray, Lord, that even today by your spirit, you would do that. Because, Lord, we want your rule and your reign in our lives and in this world. 
We want to see places where people, they come under your authority. They become obedient to you. We want to see places in this world where broken lives are restored and people are reconciled back to you. And Jesus, people get to know you, the king of the kingdom. And because of that, not only is their life transformed now, but their eternity is secure in you that someday they will experience why they were created. To be in a face-to-face relationship with you, the creator of all things. And I'm going to pause in my prayer and just with your eyes closed for a moment. If you are at a place where you know that something in you is stirring, in fact, you're trying to grasp this thing called the kingdom and you're thinking, man, I can't even go there. I'm still trying to figure out if Jesus is real. But one of the things that you will know for sure today, whether you know Jesus or you don't, but especially if you don't and you're here, you would, if you were being honest, you would say, I have a feeling that God has already been at work on me. In fact, you're here probably because there's something unsettled in you. And because that's stirring, you, you want to deny it, you want to crowd it out, you want to turn down the volume, but it just keeps coming at you. That's the mustard seed of the kingdom that God has planted in you. And he's allowing it to grow within you because what he's wanting it to do is he's wanting eventually that seed to break the surface in your life. And that the moment where that surface, the surface is broken is this thing called salvation. Because of our own choices, because of our humanity, because of our sinfulness, we have chosen to go our own way and reject God. We've chosen to be the king of our own kingdom. Jesus comes along and says, no, there's a better kingdom. There's a greater king. And that king is me. And what's so amazing about Jesus the king is he's the king that was willing to come and become one of his subjects, people, human, so that he could take every point of failure and sin and brokenness and rebellion. And when he went to the cross and died, he took all of that to pay the penalty for our sin, which removed it from this barrier between us and God. And he once again reconciled us back to God. That, in a nutshell, in a very simple form, is called the gospel. And it's what is working in you right now for you to respond to what God is saying to you today. You need to surrender your life to Jesus. And if you have yet to do that, you can do that today by simply speaking to God, by praying and saying, Lord Jesus, I surrender everything. My purpose, my will, my job, my relationships, my money, all the things... And I take them out of my kingdom and I place them in your kingdom and give my life to you. In that, God comes by his spirit through Jesus, deposits his spirit in you and says, now I'm going to begin by the the act of yeast and by the growth of the mustard seed to transform you from the inside out. So just do that right now. Just say, Jesus, I want to surrender fully. I want to give my life. I want to turn away from what I used to be and I want to become what you want me to be. Lord Jesus, whether we know you or not in this moment, I pray that it be true for all of us, that you are constantly taking up more and more space in our hearts and our lives. You are taking territory every day so that someday we are fully, fully surrendered in every aspect of who we are so that you truly do rule and reign in every aspect of who we are. We thank you, Jesus, for your kingdom. In your name, amen.